Hello again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gassman. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist and gives the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. This episode is all about Asians in America, which has been a really long time coming. Yes, it has. You know, what we've been doing with our first six episodes is looking to lay out a foundation for the show, both in format and also in the framework that we think is important to see how history shapes our present and potentially our future. So that is why we've had a strong emphasis on African-American history, because understanding the true history of that diaspora is integral to understanding the politics of our nation and how we can make a new course going forward. African-Americans paved the way for the growth of Asian America. You've heard me say in previous episodes that the combination of the Civil Rights Movement and the Cold War pushed the passage and signing of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, the law that widely allowed immigrants of color into America for the first time. Most Asian Americans are here today because of that law, including me. I've told you previously that my parents are Filipino immigrants who came to the United States in the early days of the Marcos dictatorship. That was in the 1970s. As of the 2016 U.S. Census, the Asian American population was almost 21 million strong. So we're looking at a population that's quickly finding its political voice and realizing its political power, especially in the younger generations. But when we talk about labor, immigration, foreign policy, racism... The Asian American story is still one that has not been adequately told. Yes, and that has been glaringly obvious these past few weeks, from the attacks on Asian elders in public places to the March 16 shootings at spas in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Eight died in these shootings, including six women of Asian descent. And collectively, these violent attacks have released a tidal wave of media coverage that reveals just how little understanding this country has of Asian America. And some of the coverage was lacking or resulted in inflaming tensions. But I want to emphasize this point. We do not have to settle for inadequate news coverage. If the news is just the first draft of history, as Ralph and I have been telling you all along, we can help write it. There's so much to discuss here that we decided it needed more than one episode to catch you up. So we'll have two episodes coming your way within the next week. First, we wanted to share an interview with someone whose community successfully battled misinformation targeted at them. And it's our hope that this gives you ideas for taking action to shape the world you want to see. So it's our great pleasure to introduce you all to Dr. Tu Quach. When Tu was five years old, she moved to the United States as a refugee after the Vietnam War. And now she's an epidemiologist who dedicates her life to helping immigrants, especially new ones to this country. Tu is the Chief Deputy of Administration for Asian Health Services, which has community health centers in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she's also a founding board member of PIVOT, the Progressive Vietnamese American Organization. Through her work and her advocacy, Tu deeply recognizes ways that immigrants are targeted with bad policies and media misinformation, and she bands with her community to fight both. So Tu, welcome to the show. I can't tell you how excited we are about this conversation with you. But thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on this podcast. So, Tu, let's start off with some background to give our listeners a look into your unique perspective. Back in April 2018, you were in Washington, D.C., 
giving testimony at a congressional briefing. And specifically, you were telling your immigration story because you saw a policy change in the works that would hurt immigrants just like yourself, as well as the ones you serve at Asian Health Services. And I thought those remarks were a terrific framework to today's conversation about taking action for the world that you want to see. So two, go ahead and tell us what your immigrant story is. What were the circumstances that led your family to move to America? So uh, I came here, as you were saying, as a refugee when I was nearly five. Uh, it was in December of 1979. And I would say that that experience shaped who I am today uh, in so many ways, you know, uh, as someone who left a country because of the impacts of war uh, and left it with my, and fa my entire family intact. Coming here, first living in the refugee camps, for nearly a year waiting for sponsorship here. And I remember the day when we arrived um, at San Francisco airport and it was freezing, uh, December 29th, 1979. Uh, my parents, uh, my older brother and my oldest sister and myself, I was nearly five and it just felt like a completely different world entirely. And we didn't know what to expect. Uh, we came with literally nothing. I don't think we even had enough clothes to fill a suitcase among the five of us. Um, we were fortunate enough to be sponsored by one of my dad's uh, previous superior during the war who had settled here in 1975. But what was really impactful for us was coming here to an entirely new country and getting public assistance. Uh, we were automatically put on to uh, programs like Medica Medicaid, um, as well as getting cash assistance, getting food assistance, all of the things that uh, many of the new immigrants and refugees need when they first come here. And I remember going back to preparing for those remarks and thinking to myself why I was so angry about this public charge rule change that would actually target uh, legal immigrants, immigrants who were on a legal or had a legal pathway but really penalizing them for using basic services like healthcare, like food assistance, like public housing, all the things that my family received when we first got here and made the difference so that we could build a home here and, and allow me to get the education that I could get. And feeling so upset that those basic human rights would be used against immigrants um, to deny them uh, legal uh, residents here in the U.S. and even threaten their deportation. And I think that my immigrant story, my refugee story, is not uncommon. It is really getting a, 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 an investment early on. And then the story I keep telling is that nearly all of the people, nearly all of the 500 staff that work at Asian Health Services, we're talking about the frontline staff, the doctors, the nurses, the the registration people, uh, the mental health clinicians, the dentists. Many of us were immigrants and refugees ourselves. And we grow up and we choose to work at a place like Asian Health Services because we saw the investment in us and we're giving back in multiple folds. So it's really upsetting that there would be any policies that are directed at immigrants for using basic services early on, knowing that in so many ways, immigrants have made this nation stronger and that we pay back everything that's given to us in multifold. Yeah, too, let's uh, take a little bit of a step back because I don't think our listeners are really fully aware of the public charge rule. 
So the public charge rule is something that had existed in the past, and during the previous uh, federal administration, it was changed to something that was more stringent. So can you talk a little bit more about what it used to be and then what it became um, in the past four years? So uh, public charge rule has been around for about 100 years, and even its roots has been really racist. It's really to uh, select different types of immigrants that they want here. And in many ways, it's it's a test, a class and, and uh, based test that says, hey, you know, if you're not rich and wealthy, we kind of don't want you here. But the way it's been tame over the years is really to say, uh, for those who are coming here, we don't want them to rely on uh, entirely on government assistance. Um, but over the over many years of advocacy, uh, many groups, including Asian Health Services, has limited that definition of what the public assistance uh, that's used would be counted against uh, immigrants would be. And it's mostly cash assistance and long-term care. When the Trump administration took office previously, they decided that that was going to be the rule. That's going to be something that they change in that, in that policy. Um, and they did it through a regulatory process that says, well, now, instead of it being just around cash assistance and long-term care, we're going to add to the list of things that we're going to count against you. So we're, if you use things like Medicaid, you know, basic health care, which we know saves people, saves this country tons of money when you get good primary health care, um, that is going to be used against you. If you get things like food stamps, that's going to count against you. And if you get things like public housing assistance, that will also count against you. And what that does beyond just expanding the pool is causing chilling effects, even for those where it wouldn't apply to them. And so we saw that as soon as they actually uh, tried to pass the rule. And when they did pass it, major chilling effects that were happening. And sadly, the rule change took effect on February 24th, 2020, just weeks before the pandemic started. And when the pandemic started, we saw so many health impacts, people who were ill, people who were infected, and then people who were hungry because they had lost their jobs. And guess what? There was a chilling effect. People were afraid to tap into assistance, asking twice before they applied for programs that doesn't, isn't even listed because they were afraid of things like being deported or be denied legal residence here in the U.S. Uh, thank you for that. And I'm so glad that you had pointed out the effects during the pandemic as well, because obviously this is a time where more people would be tapping into those basic services, as you said. And again, these are services that had been available to you and your family when you first came to the United States. So, um, Ralph, I just want to bring you in here because one of the things that we like to do on the show is to give a lot of historical context and so I know Ralph wanted to say a bit more about the Vietnam War and then also, you know, why, why it's important for these services to exist for refugees. For sure. And, and I think that it's an aspect that's underreported in the news when talking about these kinds of issues is our foreign policy and how it affects other countries and people who come to this country in return. Just as a brief review, the United States government was involved in military and political events in Vietnam for more than 20 years. 
um, first by aiding the French government's attempts to recolonize Indochina in the 1950s. Then they stayed involved behind the scenes politically, sent military advisors, and eventually, under Lyndon Johnson, sent military troops back to the country in 1965 in large numbers. At one point, at the peak, over a half million U.S. troops were there. And that devastates a region. Most of the fighting in the war was in South Vietnam. And the most up-to-date stats that we've seen from 2008, the British Medical Journal did an updated estimate of deaths due to those wars in Vietnam for over a generation. And they pretty much said that it was about 3.8 million Vietnamese dead, which is much higher than about the 2 million estimate that came out previous to that. And given the U.S. government's involvement in the political and military issues in that region throughout that entire time, it would at least make sense that you should help the people there that now are leaving because they don't agree with the government that's coming in or their lives were destroyed because of what what was happening in the country or both instead of trying to turn a blind eye. And I think there's a similarity, honestly, there with what goes on in other countries, Haiti, Honduras, you name it. Um, Two, I I would love to get your thoughts a bit on, on on that part. Yeah, for our family, I can share with you that we left because uh, there was a danger in staying. My dad actually was one of the uh, people who had been trained by the CIA. Um, and, and he tells a story that he actually joined the training because they were paying him $8 a week. And so he was so poor that he was willing to get trained just to make a living. Um, so he was amongst those who were trained. Um, and then he would spy just to uh, be able to identify uh, the Viet Congs, the, the Northerners that were in the South. Um, but because his, his identity, it was hidden for the time, so we were able to remain in Vietnam um, after the war. But we knew eventually they were going to get to his name. Um, and so we were scared that he would be sent to the re-education camps. Mm-hmm. Once you get sent, you don't always know if you'll return. And so, um, and and actually I should back up and share this really powerful story that because of my dad's involvement, he actually had the opportunity to get airlifted out of Vietnam during the fall of Saigon in 1975. Um, April 30th, 1975 was the day known as the fall of Saigon. Um, And as he was walking there as a soldier um, and he got to where, right in the line where he was gonna get airlifted out, one of his friends turned to him, um, and, and he was by himself because they only had enough room for him and not his entirely fam- his entire family, not my mom, not my brother, not my sister, not myself. Um, and so uh, his friend turned to him and said, if you leave now, you may never see your family again. And so my dad, in that split second, decided to turn around and walk through the crowd um, and return back to stay with us, risking his entire life. Um, and so we knew that we had limited time before his name would be discovered. Uh, and that's where, in nine, the end of 1978, we planned an escape out of the country. Uh, in the middle of the night, by boat, uh, uh, our family of five, along with some of my dad's siblings, um, got on a fishing boat with uh, others. Uh, I don't remember the number, but it was a lot of people from my vague memory. Um, and we sailed for days and days, weeks possibly. Um, we were out of water, we were out of food, and then slowly we found uh, there was a, uh, a Thai 
boat that pulled us in and we were brought into the refugee camp from there. And and I guess going back to the question you asked, you know, for for people who are leaving, it really depends on the time period that they're leaving. We talk about the first wave of refugees who are escaping, you know, either they get airlifted out or the ones leaving by boat. And then the second wave, we were part of the second wave, what was called the boat people escaping thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of us leaving in the middle of the night. Uh, many who lost their lives at sea because you take that risk. Many who ended up in the refugee camps waiting for a country to sponsor us and not all are taken. Um, and so uh, if you think about the journey uh, from that fall of Saigon, uh, it really is you know, putting your life in danger and you wonder why would people put their lives in danger unless they knew that staying would be a greater danger for them, right? And I think that is the power of the story of refugees um, is because staying actually meant a greater risk than leaving um, and, and risking your life at sea. And so I think with that, when you think about the Vietnamese refugee community here in the U.S., that we're so connected by the, the trauma of the war, but also the trauma after the war and what it meant to have escaped in that way and to have risked your life and then to rebuild that that resettlement itself had been traumatic for so many of us as well. Yeah, and that's why I see your work at Asian Health Services being so important. Um, you can tell us, too, how many of your clients there have stories that are similar to yours, and maybe not quite as dramatic, um, but just the sense of uh, the reasons why people leave their home countries is usually because of political or economic upheaval, right? I mean, otherwise they would have stayed. Yeah, the stories and the connection with our patients and the children are, are what I would say brings so many of the staff to work there. Uh, we ourselves are from the communities that we serve. And in that way, when our communities are attacked, I think that we aren't just service providers. We're the greatest advocates, too. Um, and so when you look at the, the policies like public charge, and then the past, there's been many policies that have attacked our, our communities. This is not the first. Um, there have been many others. Um, and our doctors, our nurses, our frontline staff, we often rally because we really believe that it is not enough just to provide the services. It's important to empower and to fight alongside our patients to ensure that people aren't just getting care, but it's their right to get care. Uh, it's part of our, our human right to get quality care. And I, I think that because many of us have experienced the, the same type of refugee and immigrant experience, whether you're the first generation or your descendants uh, from it. Uh, we feel very close to this community. And when, uh, like I said, when they are attacked, we feel like we are attacked ourselves. Absolutely. And I want to widen the scope a little bit for our listeners because um, a lot of times in the news, the public charge rule, the, the new version of it that was enacted during the previous administration, tends to be portrayed as something that affects immigrants who are already here. Um, but there is another piece to this, uh, and basically it is also affecting folks who are still in their home countries but who are applying to move here. 
the higher financial requirements, for example, very likely would mean that America, under this version of the public charge rule, would reject someone like my own dad, who was fluent in English and had a chemistry degree. But my dad was from what they called the barrio in the Philippines, which means he didn't come from money. He came from a poor rural area. And as a matter of fact, when America gave my dad a green card, he had no savings and no job lined up in America. He landed in New Jersey with $35. His first bed in the United States was a discarded mattress he literally pulled off a sidewalk. It was someone else's trash. And the, when he left, it was right at the beginning of the Marcos dictatorship. So just by coincidence, my dad had um, put in an application for a green card in 1968, got it in 72, just as the country was shutting down under martial law. So the difference between, say, my dad's experience and your experience, too, is that you came here as a refugee. My dad just happened to, the timing of it worked out that he's got his green card. But the point is, is that, you know, you still came to this country under, with very few resources and had to work your way up. Now, the thing is, is that, you know, my dad got a job as a security guard and then as a chemist. And decades later, he retired early and became an entrepreneur. And it was fine. America worked out for him like it worked out for you, too. So to everyone listening, I want you guys to understand what the public charge rule does. It judges a person's entire lifetime of potential based on a single snapshot of their finances. And it judges those people by whether or not you know, they would be perceived to be a risk to the United States if they might go on some of these services that Tu was talking about earlier that helped her family get established here. And for those people who are in countries with weak economies compared to the United States, it is really hard to meet these higher financial requirements that are under the new version of public charge because these requirements are, are measured in U.S. dollars. So if you think about the Philippines, per, for example, it takes a little bit more than 48 pesos to make up one U.S. dollar. That's the exchange rate today. So how much money do you have to save up in Philippine pesos to meet this higher requirement in U.S. dollars? So what this really is is a class-based rule that disfavors poorer immigrants, as Tu had said earlier, and is even more severe now. And you know, I very quickly realized that the result of this policy is to erase future generations of Americans like my dad or me or Tu's mom and her family. And so basically, I think you guys, listeners now, can see how galvanizing this public charge rule was for Asian America. And now we're going to get to the action piece that we talked about earlier, because one of the movements that came out in reaction to public charge is called One Nation AAPI. And this is a movement that Tu is a leader in. So before we get to Tu's story about this, guys, I want to read you something from the One Nation AAPI website that ties all of this background that we've been talking about here to the media narratives that we normally discuss on this podcast. So here's the quote. The narrative shift. We are one nation built on the strength of immigrants, pioneers, hard workers, responsible for one another. This is our stake in the ground, and we are going all in to capture the hearts and minds across the nation and shift the narrative on immigrants in America. Through the commission, the website, key spokespeople, elected and community leaders, and ethnic and mainstream media. So two, tell us, how did you guys do this? Who's part of One Nation? How did it form? How did you guys create this narrative shift? 
So the One Nation uh, coalition was formed shortly after uh, Asian Health Services decided that we were not going to remain quiet. And I should give some context that uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, the public charge rule was also looked at, and we were concerned about that. And my CEO uh, uh, at Asian Health Services, Sherry Hirota, actually fought against it because uh, one of our patients was caught up in that. Um, and so we, we knew that when the, the uh, Trump administration was going to change the rule, that we had to speak up. But we knew that we couldn't do it alone. And it was interesting because, you know, in many ways, people see this policy as more of an immigration policy. Um, and there was questions of why would a community health center providing primary care and such get involved? But we, we kind of argued this is the intersection of everything. And the problem is, as Asian Americans, we're often on the sidelines when it comes to immigration policies. And so in that work, we decided not only do we need to mobilize ourselves, our patients, our staff, and our community, but we needed to make sure that our counterparts, that our, our partners working in this community needed to be galvanized too. And so the One Nation Coalition was established to make sure that our voices were heard. Um, we started that, I believe, back in 2018 um, when the rule change was going through this process where they were accepting public comment. And so through all of our partners, we had 100 partners minimally across the nation. We mobilized 23,000 comments that were objecting to the rule change. And overall, uh, there was about 200 and something, 220,000 comments. It's one of the most comments they ever, public comments they ever received uh, when it came to any of the rule changes. But it was really through efforts to make sure that our communities do not remain quiet. And through that work, uh, we decided that it was important to explain what public charge was because it's kind of a very complex rule change. Um, but we, it, at the heart of it, it was about the narrative shift to ensure that we say that immigrants are make this nation stronger. This nation has been built on the strength of immigrants and that as Asian Americans, many of us are immigrants ourselves and we needed to care. And so in many ways, the One Nation Coalition uh, and, and the movement itself allowed us a platform to leverage our collective voices and to fight back. Uh, and so it was one of the most amazing things to be a part of because we didn't stop with just nonprofits. We reached out to celebrities. We reached out to elected officials who had similar stories to many of us. We reached out to our own communities and really explained to them why this was so harmful and that for many of them who had gone through, have become citizens, to say, you know, when you walk through that door, you can't slam it after you. You've really got to keep it open for all the other new immigrants that are coming through as well. Um, and so that that became the One Nation Coalition, uh, the One Nation Movement. But, you know, as we, we are here now today, um, facing the pandemic, we realized that, the, that it didn't stop with just public charge, but it became in itself a movement about many of us as immigrants deserving the respect and needing to not feel invisibilized by this nation uh, in so many ways. And so I'm proud to say that the One Nation movement continues to this day 
even while the Trump administration no longer exists, but that it continues to fight and to ensure that the voices of immigrants, including Asian Americans, are heard loud and clear, especially during the pandemic when we're facing both the COVID virus as well as the anti-Asian hate that's going on right now. So, too, tell us about the two commission reports that uh, One Nation has put out, because these are, guys, these are really terrific reports, very well produced, and they touch on the specific issues that Tu is talking about right now. Yeah, so uh, as part of the, the One Nation work, we put out two powerful reports. The first one uh, on information uh, in, in very uh, strong narratives around why this nation is built on the strength of immigrants. You know, all the contributions that uh, Asian Americans and other immigrant communities have made and why the public charge rule was so harmful. And then uh, earlier in 2020, we also released our second report as we were living through this nightmare of the pandemic. But we highlighted that for the Asian American communities, we were facing a dual pandemic of both the COVID virus as well as the racism that was happening to us. You know, whether they were attacked against uh, community members or whether they're about us feeling gaslighted because the narrative had been, oh, we're not suffering from this. It's the whole model minority myth again. Um, and so uh, the, the terms that we used is, we were fighting against being both blamed for the virus and then being ignored when it came to services that we needed in our community. Two, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think those two commission reports are available for download now off of the One Nation website? Yes, yes. So you can go on to onenationapi.com and get both reports. They are powerful reports uh, written and edited by Helen Zia herself, the famous author. Um, as well as uh, many different contributions from various subject matter experts. And those commission reports have been distributed to elected officials, to different health services, um, pretty much to anyone who wants to use them, really, right, too? Yes, and I remember when the first one came out, we were in D.C., and we went to every single congressional office and handed them a report. Um, Because it was really important that they really heard from our community. And then uh, when the second report came out, uh, because of the pandemic, we sent everyone a copy as well. Have you seen specific instances of the the language in those reports or references to those reports in news media at all? Yes. Well, we've seen it in some media. But more importantly, we've seen it uh, in our elected officials, like the wonderful Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Uh, When she has lifted up and talked about the anti-Asian hate, she has referenced the work of the One Nation movement as well as some of the statistics that we've put out. And I just want to add that, you know, one of the problems is when we talk about the anti-Asian hate, um, there's definitely crimes that are reported and underreported and and attacks on Asian Americans, uh, including some that we have witnessed among our patients and our staff. But it's also the way that the government is responding and others are responding to the, the suffering in our community when it came to COVID. So in my work at Asian Health Services, I had been working, uh, you know, along with many, with all of my colleagues around the COVID response. 
you know, or in the early days, how do we get PPE to our communities, including our staff? Then we set up the first uh, community testing site, um, the first ones that provided uh, the different Asian languages available. But during all that time, it was really hard to make the case that our community needed these services. But a lot of times when we mentioned, well, we need more testing, look, the data is showing that there's under-testing in Asian Americans, we got met with a lot of blank stares, like, well, we don't really see that as, as a disparity. And so it took researchers like myself uh, and many others at UCSF, at UCLA, to go voluntarily pull together data that show that actually Asian Americans have higher death rates uh, when it came to COVID. Uh, and that for certain groups like Vietnamese and Filipinos, we were seeing higher rates than the average, but most of the time the data was aggregated, so you couldn't see these disparities within groups um, like ours. And it was this constant feeling of being gaslighted, and then when you try to raise it, uh, feeling like you had to argue why you may have it worse than other communities. And so that has been the other racism that has gone on during the COVID period against our community. And I, I would say that's one that's gone on for many, many years but we saw it exacerbated during the COVID pandemic. So is this one of the um, topics that One Nation's going to be tackling going forward beyond the uh, second commission report that you folks put out? Yes, it, it feels like, you know, when we created One Nation, it was established to fight public charge, but in many ways, that feeling of being targeted and ignored continues. And so the movement continues to raise our voices around our community's needs. So guys, I hope you can see just this one movement alone is a really big deal for those of us in Asian America, right? And the work that Two does, this is a very unifying, um, it's a very unifying movement, meaning that it really addresses AAPI. And as it continues, it draws on different communities within Asian America. That alone would be a big accomplishment. But Tu also was involved in another big campaign, going on today still, to fight disinformation targeted to Vietnamese communities. Some of you out there may know of Viet Fact Check. You want to tell us what that is, too? Yeah, so Viet Fact Check is a program uh, within Pivot, uh, the Progressive Vietnamese American Organization. And I would say that, you know, as background, uh, Pivot was established four years ago. Uh, it took many of us who were just pissed off uh, at what the Trump administration was doing uh, to our communities and to other communities of color. And so right after uh, Trump took office, we formed Pivot. Uh, Pivot was established um, as a, a vehicle for us to really engage our community, to lift up our voices around progressive values uh, that unite us, but also uh, among us, but also across different communities. And I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, as someone who works at Asian Health Services, dealing with public charge, dealing with so much, why I would want to be involved in starting up a new organization. And I thought, wow, you know, no matter what we did, it came, all roads kind of led to the election, that without getting a different type of administration, we were always on the defensive when it came to issues of fighting for our community. And so 
uh, hundreds of us got together and formed a 501c4 so that we could work during the elections and then that we could also put out a voice that was a different narrative from what we were hearing from uh, the existing Vietnamese community, which is often more conservative. So Pivot was established, and we knew that 2020 was going to be a critical year for us, that that was where we were mobilizing, that we wanted to engage our community to lift up voices from across different generations. And so come 2020 and everything, it was all hands on deck. And we were looking around thinking, how do we ensure that our community shows up at the polls and that they vote? They vote for the candidates that were going to represent them that was, that was going to be staying true to the values that we held so dearly and that we were going to not allow uh, this to happen again. And so one of the issues that came out was the blatant disinformation that was going on within the Vietnamese community, whether it was through ethnic media uh, in all forms. And so some of the Pivot members, uh, I want to shout out some names, Tan Tan, Tan, Tan uh, I think Nick Nguyen, Didi Tran, and a few others, you know, in different parts of the country said, well, let's start something called Viet Fact Check. And the one incident that came up was we were hearing all of this misinformation and deliberate disinformation around why, how Joe Biden voted against uh, allowing Vietnamese refugees and other Southeast Asian, uh, Asian refugees from coming in. And we knew that wasn't true, but that was the type of information, wrong information that was being spread in our community to convince Vietnamese Americans not to vote for him. And so Viet Fact Check was started to say, well, what if we put something out from us, from within the community, in language that would check all of this wrong information and provided a more reliable source of information to our community? Because we felt like they were being deceived and it was up to us to try to fight back. So this fact check was created, and it started with that one article. I remember the day it went live, and it was quite incredible. And then we started seeing more, a, a greater need for other types of misinformation. So this fact check kept continuing, and, and the way they was presenting information about whether something was true or not and, and fact-checking on it seemed to have struck a chord with people from all different generations. And so we saw that, you know, there were so many volunteers stepping up going, I want to be a part of this. I've been so pissed at the type of, at the, the amount of misinformation that is being put into the ears of my parents. And, and this is one way in which I can, I can stop it. This gives me information and those like myself to talk to my parents about it. But it also was uh, how they were putting it into ethnic media, in, into print, uh, and, and in different forms. And so this fact check continues today because there's still so much misinformation that's being said in our community. And it's one way in which we can say, let's fight that. Let's not stop it with each administration. Let's know that this trend continues and let's be the reliable information source that can get pushed through our, our communities. And guys, I want you to check this out because it's really remarkable. So if you go to beitfactcheck.org, um, there are some sections here of this website that show you just how big the problem is. So there's a section here at the top called How Misinformation Spreads. There's another page called Eight Ways to Fight Fake News. And there's also a press section um, which lists different articles in which Viet Fact Check is uh, mentioned. 
And so a couple of them, you know, let's just say the New York Times, how fake news is hatching in immigrant communities. Uh, we've got Vox, the challenge of combating fake news in Asian American communities. NPR, Asian American voters face misinformation campaigns. So I really encourage all of our listeners to really just scroll through this and read some of these articles because it gives you a real sense of how the misinformation takes root and how it is spread. Too, I, I did want to ask here, were you surprised, were you and the Viet Fact Check folks surprised that after Trump left office, it almost seems like this is more needed than ever and, and it hasn't ratcheted down, but it's just as pervasive and maybe more? We were never surprised because we knew that misinformation began way before Trump took office. And so it would likely be, uh, it would likely exist after. And, and I would say that that's been the trend that Pivot has taken on entirely, that just because we got Trump out of office does not mean that our work is done. Now we needed to work with a, although a more friendly administration, but it's time to really reverse so much that's happened and to hold this administration accountable to the voters, the voters that we engage to get them into office. And so um, we felt like none of our work needed to disband, but it actually needed to be strengthened and sustained uh, for a longer term. And it's important to note that Viet Fact Check is not just a website. Uh, too, you had talked about putting articles in ethnic media, and then also, I think you had said something to us earlier about the videos on YouTube that al also help spread uh, corrections of misinformation, right? Yes, and so um, aside from VIT fact check, there were just many efforts that sprung out of Pivot. During, during that period, we had VIT and Vote to really provide people a way of registering to vote and why it's important to vote. Um, and then there was a digital ad, a digital team that created videos. It was really incredible, all of this work. That was all volunteer-based, I have to say. You know, people were working full-time jobs and committing to, you know, 10, 20, 40 hours uh, a week to make it all happen. And so there was a video team that created different videos. And then those were put out on YouTube videos just to spread it in our community. And so we were trying to blast every wave possible, the airwaves, you know, videos, print, to make sure that we can counter information, the, 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 uh, the misinformation with more reliable information. Uh, and, and it was quite a lot of work because, you know, there was so much, um, so much fake news that was spread in our community. Um, and, and we, I would say that all of us, you know, there were hundreds of us that were just volunteering and, you know, many sleepless nights, but it was really powerful because we felt most connected. Many of us have never met each other that we were emailing and on Slack together. So we didn't, we don't even know what we looked like, you know, to each other. And to see that we were building something uh, so powerful because we felt so passionate that our communities deserve reliable information to make informed decisions. And so uh, I was really um, heartened when one of our uh, younger members who was on the board uh, sent an email to all of Pivot and said, my dad just told me that he's going to vote for Biden because he saw the article from the Fact Check and some of the videos. And we, I think there was just this, like, this scream on the email that we felt like we had made it somehow because we had changed at least one person's dad's 
um, mind around it. And, and that was the power of organizing virtually, but feeling that, you know, we weren't just organizing people out there. We were organizing our own family members, some of the hardest work that needed to be done. And so I would say that many of us exhausted from the elections still continue this work because we know that the work has just begun for us. The work never ends, too. No. It never ends. <laughs> so, guys, I hope that you are inspired by Two's story. You can see just the power of just one person who's committed to doing something about misinformation in their communities or changing a really harmful news narrative. Uh, they never, ever doubt the power of what one person can do when they band with other like-minded people who are also really motivated. Uh, so, too, thank you so much for sharing the story. We, I can't even tell you guys how excited <laughs> we yeah. were to, to interview, too, especially when we had questioned her about some of the things she was doing before getting uh, on this conversation with you all. It's just really fantastic work you're doing, yeah. too. Can't you, thank you enough. You're our very first guest, and we were so <laughs> happy to have you be the first guest on Catch Me Up to Speed. This was really, really great. Thank you so much. Well, it's such an honor to speak to you because I— Many times I'm moving so fast, I've forgotten a lot of this work, too. <laughs> I'm glad we're giving you an opportunity to sit down and absorb all the work that you guys are doing. And, you know, it really is heartening to hear that you're going to keep up all of these efforts. That you, It really, really just was laying groundwork. And now, now it's needed more than ever, and it will just continue. Thank you. You know, Ralph, I'm just so fired up now. Two is, is so incredible. She does so much work, and the work keeps going, and she sticks with it all the way through. Yeah, I mean, just all the ideas that she has and the energy that she has, uh, you know, since she's our personal friend, we know how much time she puts into all of these initiatives that are near and dear to her heart. But what's really great is just that is this notion of tapping into your community to create something far bigger with a whole group of people than you could do on your own. I just love that. And that's our show. Remember, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, and C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. Follow us on Twitter at CatchMeUp2Speed, that's the number 2, Speed, for updates and previews of our next episode, which is going to come your way very soon. We will get into the media coverage very shortly. As always, thanks for spending time with us today, and talk to you again soon. Yeah.